Well, hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 86 of the Popecast, A History of the Papacy, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories on the successors of St. Peter and a reminder that all of the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Well, this first episode of 2022, sorry, by the way, for the hiatus, uh, is sponsored by our friends over at Catholic Balm Co., curators of the finest line of beard balms, oils, lotion bars, and more. You can check them out at catholicbalm.co, and be sure to enter the code POPE, P-O-P-E, at checkout to receive 10% off your entire order. Well, today's episode is about another one of those popes who you've probably never heard of, but is definitely one to remember. He was saintly from an early age, and despite desiring a life of anonymity, in his service to Christendom, was plucked by the emperor from obscurity to become pope, and ultimately ushering one of the biggest reform movements in Catholicism's 2,000-year history. This week on the Popecast, it's the Pope Who Worked Miracles, number 152, Pope St. Leo IX. von Egesheim Dagsberg was born on June 21st in the year 1002 AD in Upper Alsace, what is now the border between France and Germany, to a German father and a French mother. His father, Count Hugh, was a first cousin of Conrad II, the man who would become Holy Roman Emperor when Bruno was in his early 20s. His parents were known to be both well-educated and pious. Indeed, in old age, as Leo IX's biographer would later write, they actually ended up taking on the monk and nun's habits and, quote, giving their patrimonies to the churches, and building monasteries on their properties with their own revenues. In fact, the future pope's mother reported being visited one night by a man in religious habit, telling her that she had conceived a son who would be, quote, great before God, and commanded that he should be named Bruno, end quote. Now, being born into a noble family obviously had its perks. Despite indoor plumbing not being one of them, young Bruno still was afforded a much better than average education, having been taken under the wing of Berthold, the bishop of Toul, a position Bruno himself would one day hold. He entered Berthold's school at five and was living in residence at Toul's historic cathedral of St. Stephen by age 15. From an early age, his parents' piety seemed to have been picked up by Bruno, almost genetic it would seem, and apparently strengthened by grace nonetheless, because he was known as an especially saintly child who had what the Catholic Encyclopedia called a, quote, tender conscience. As one story goes, the same volume recounts, quote, we are told that though he had given abundant proofs of a bright mind, on one occasion he could not study out of an exceptionally beautiful book which his mother had bought and given to him. At length it transpired that the book had been stolen from the Abbey of St. Hubert in the Ardennes. When Halevide had restored the volume to its rightful owners, the little Bruno's studies proceeded unchecked. When he was still in adolescence, Bruno was very nearly killed, apparently having been attacked by a poisonous frog in his sleep and slipping between life and death for some time, as a result of the injuries to his head and neck. During this ordeal, he recounted later to his close confidant and eventual biographer, whose name sadly has been lost to history, that he had a vision of the great Saint Benedict, founder of the Benedictine Order, who healed his injuries by touching them with a cross. That biographer, who penned his work on the great Pope just six years after Leo died, even went so far as to say, quote, Even today, in his edifying conversations, it is his custom to tell his closest friends how he perceived this clear instance of God's compassion toward him, and he declares that in the vision he immediately recognized as clear as day by the appearance of his face and his habit, Benedict, the most blessed father of the monks. End quote. In terms of his appearance and personality in general, the author Mary Stroll writes in her book Popes and Antipopes 
the politics of 11th century church reform that, quote, the author of the life of Leo IX depicts Bruno as a very pious man who frequently wept and was anything but worldly. Amatus of Monte Cassino, who wrote a history of the Normans after 1078 that ended in the middle of the reign of Gregory VII, provides color and detail in his account. Amatus says he was very handsome, with red hair and a lordly stature. He was a master of letters and was beloved by the emperor as well as by the Holy Roman Church. In 1024, when Bruno was 22 years old, he was sent by his parents and relatives to serve in the chapel of cousin Conrad, who had been recently elected emperor. It didn't take long for him to win the affection of those around him, and even gained himself a nickname. With Bruno being a relatively common name at the time, he became known to his compatriots as Bruno the Good. As Bruno continued to grow in virtue, he also became an increasingly close advisor to both the emperor and his wife, so much so that barely a year later, having been ordained a deacon by that time, he traveled with Conrad in place of the elderly new bishop of Toul throughout his tour of Italy, which involved his official coronation in Rome. Bruno was assigned to command and organize the battalion of knights that accompanied the emperor of all things, arranging their guard schedule, rations, wages, and doing such a good job that when their traveling party was attacked along the way, minimal losses were suffered. It was during this trip, during the attack itself, as a matter of fact, that Bruno's bishop died. Bruno was immediately chosen to succeed him. The newly ordained bishop would be content there for over two decades, despite Conrad being insistent on getting him into higher and more important offices. Bruno, in the spirit of Pope St. Gregory the Great, was perfectly content where he was, in a humble sea, serving the people of God with as much personal obscurity as possible. Now, those 20 years were no walk in the park, mind you. He dealt with everything from famine to brigandage in that country town of Toul, and here and there was still enlisted by the boss to handle various jobs abroad. One of those, in fact, was helping the emperor annex a whole region into his kingdom, Burgundy, and to make peace with the French to boot. It was also during Bruno's reign in Toul that both of his parents died, along with two of his brothers. Now, what was happening over the over in the Eternal City, as longtime listeners of the Popecast may remember, was the literal opposite of the virtuous life of Bruno of Toul. It was during the latter days of Bruno's reign as bishop that the notorious Pope Benedict IX was having his fun being Pope three different times. Yes, you heard that right. Three different times. At one point, selling the papacy to his godfather. It was his godfather's idea, actually, if you remember, just to get the ingrate out of office, but still. And at two other points, Benedict was driven from Rome by an angry mob, so hated he was. And all that culminated in 1048. Bishop Bruno would become Leo IX in 1049. So you could say the papacy was in need of more than a little dusting and a swift kick in the, well, you know. As a quick aside, just a year prior to that, though, in 1047, during a visit to Rome, the future Leo IX received a vision of his own election to the papacy, and as it turned out, of two others. Though he wouldn't realize that latter portion on this side of eternity. Now, if you're confused about what I mean, his biographer recounts this incredible story. That one night, after falling asleep, Bruno had a vision, quote, in which he was brought to the cathedral in the city of Worms, where he saw an infinite crowd of men dressed in white, the greater part of whom seemed to be priests. Among them, he recognized a former intimate friend, Archdeacon Bezalin, who had died while accompanying him on the journey to Rome. When he asked him what this great crowd was, he learned that these were all men who had ended their earthly lives in the service of the Prince of the Apostles. As he gazed in amazement, the blessed Peter, keeper of the keys of heaven, arrived and said that the multitude would receive communion from Bruno's hands. 
clad in pontifical vestments, Bruno was led by blessed Peter, together with the first martyr, Stephen, to the altar of the church to the sound of an indescribably melodious chant, and after he had performed the holy office, they all received that life-giving gift from his hands. It also seemed to him that after the Holy Communion, St. Peter brought to Bruno five golden chalices, but to another of his followers he gave three, and to a third only one chalice. When he told this to members of his household later, he wondered what it might portend. End quote. Well, here's what that ended up portending. I think that's a word. <laughs> uh, Spellcheck didn't alert me, so we'll go with it. Here's what it ended up portending. The Cathedral of Worms, where the vision occurred, happened to be the very place that Bruno would be chosen as Pope two years later. And the chalices, five to him, three to another guy, and one to a third guy, were a direct reference to the length of Bruno and the following two pontificates after him. Leo IX would reign for five years, Victor II reigned for three years, and Stephen IX for just one year. How neat is that? Okay, back to the story. At any rate, Pope Damasus II was the lone intermediary between the last, albeit short, tenure of Benedict IX and Bruno's election. And Damasus actually died less than a year into his papacy, so the Romans, probably wanting some lasting change for once, sent to the emperor, now Henry III, Bruno's second cousin, to intervene and pick a winner. Being a relative notwithstanding, Bruno was still Henry's number one pick for many reasons, and despite trying every which way to refuse, which the best seemed to always do, he only relented after the emperor, his German countrymen, and the Romans all insisted that he get out of his own way and accept the job for goodness sake. And even then, Bruno only said he would accept being chosen if he could go to Rome and also be elected freely by its clergy and people in person. As mentioned earlier, Henry's selection of Bruno happened at Worms, so he embarked on a pilgrimage to Rome and actually made the trip in a style that ran rather against the understood dignity of a pope in those days. He actually entered the city dressed as a mere pilgrim, without an imperial guard in shabby clothes, but nevertheless flanked by some soon-to-be heavy hitters in the decades of reform to come, chief among them being two future popes, Frederick of Lorraine, who would become Pope Stephen IX, that we just mentioned, just four years after Leo's death, and the young Hildebrand of Sawana, the future Pope St. Gregory VII. The Catholic Encyclopedia recounts that, quote, when he reached Rome and presented himself to its people clad in pilgrim's guise and barefooted, but still tall and fair to look upon, they cried out with one voice that him and no other would they have as Pope. Assuming the name of Leo IX, he was solemnly enthroned on the 12th of February, 1049. Leo IX's biographer described him as one, quote, most devoted to God, who, quote, imitated the character and life of Leo the Great, whose name he bore, end quote. Leo IX was literally world-renowned by that time, at least Western world-renowned, for his virtues, but it was written that, quote, these virtues shone in him with particular splendor, mercy and patience, quick to pardon offenders, wonderful compassion, that wept with those who confessed their crimes, a generosity and almsgiving, that gave away everything, even to the point of impoverishing himself, end quote. He would only reign as Pope, and I noted, as I noted earlier, for five years, but it was, it was like a medieval John Paul II with the rate at which he traveled in that half decade. Leo IX held 14 synods in all during that time, gatherings of bishops in places all around Europe, virtually all having to do with reigning in discipline in the various areas where he held them, which was almost always an attempt to squash out simony, the selling of church offices, and reasserting celibacy as a requirement for Western clergy. Anybody who knows anything about the 11th century knows that it was a rather sordid time. Morality was low. Let's just 
leave it at that among the clergy and uh, among people in general. But at any rate, in fact, Leo IX was more or less laying the foundation for what became known as the Gregorian Reform, that total shakeup of the papal curia, monastic life, and clergy more broadly that was ushered in by Pope St. Gregory VII and compatriots like St. Peter Damien in the later 11th century and beyond. In particular, Leo IX initially wanted to just give the stanky boot to anyone who fell under the category of simoniacal ordinations, guys who were ordained simply to pad their own pockets at the behest of a powerful relative. But his nature wasn't keen on reactionary decisions, and plus he was also keenly aware that such action would leave a rather gaping hole, practically speaking, in the body of clergy throughout Europe. So he instead gave the group 40 days to repent of their crime, and if they did so, he allowed them to keep their office. Now, the life of Leo IX has a few notable stories, that biography has a few notable stories that occurred during these synods, which also showed forth his perhaps unorthodox way of saving certain souls. One such case happened in Rhymes, quote, For when the Council of Bishops was held there, the glorious Pope deposed certain men infected with the heresy of simony from the offices that they had received unjustly. Among them was Hugh, Bishop of Langre, the subject of many horrible accusations, who was summoned to give an account of himself. And he desired the Archbishop of Besanthon, as a most eloquent man, to be his advocate and spokesman. The latter was compelled by the Lord Pope to present his case, but when he began to speak, he was suddenly struck dumb in the presence of the whole assembly, so that it was clearly evident that God would not allow the tongue of so great a prelate to be defiled by false excuses for undoubted crimes. Hugh of Langra was so terrified by this miracle that he fled by night from the judgment of the council. End quote. Leo's biographer went on to note that the venerable pontiff, moved by the crowd's pleas and likely knowing that the archbishop himself wasn't at fault for his underling being a derelict, prayed that he be able to speak again, and so it came to pass. And not just that, but that same Bishop Hugh, who had just been banished by Leo, was so moved by these miraculous events that he repented and acknowledged his faults, making a pilgrimage to Rome barefoot and fasting to such a degree that on his return trip, he died, as the biographer notes, quote, still persevering in good deeds, end quote. What's especially odd is that being struck dumb was apparently a relatively common occurrence in the presence of this pope, as it turned out. It happened two other times in particular that were mentioned in the same biography. Once in men's to a bishop with a well-known reputation for adultery, who sought to swear on the Holy Eucharist itself, but his jaw seized before he could do so, permanently, as it turns out. And the other time when a man possessed by a demon and bound in chains was brought to a mass being said by Leo. The Pope moved with pity for the man, and more practically probably annoyed by the racket at such a solemn occasion, apparently made a simple sign of the cross toward him from afar, and gestured for silence. And the demon left him, quote, in less time than it takes to relate the story, end quote, as his biographer writes. Now, I can certainly understand that not everyone who listens to and enjoys the Popecast may be particularly religious, but either way, it's interesting to note that this was the way that Leo IX sought to root out the corruption and degeneracy that had been infecting Christendom at that time, by living a life of impeccable personal virtue first and foremost, by being firm in his convictions, despite them running, running counter to what the world permitted in those days, and still showing mercy to those who ostensibly deserved punishment for straying from the promises they themselves had made. And the funny thing was, it worked, at least over the long term, as history bore out in the coming decades. Now, as far as his political machinations and other ecclesiastical encounters went, those boiled down to two broad categories, the Normans and Constantinople. 
With the latter, the church was on the verge of what's become known as the Great East-West Schism of 1054, in which Catholicism effectively became Catholicism and Orthodoxy, where the primacy of the Pope was definitively rejected by the latter. Now, of course, there were many causes to this that had been brewing over several centuries, not helped at all by the physical distance between Rome and the East, and the lack of Zoom, probably. But Leo had the pleasure of being the last Pope of a unified East and West, and it was, unfortunately, his appointee for ambassador to that region, Cardinal Humbert, who effectively put the final nail in that coffin by being more of a ready-fire-aim guy than any sort of respectable diplomat. Suffice it to say, plopping a bull of excommunication on the altar of a patriarch's church and walking out of the building, really for any reason, isn't exactly going to uh, win friends and influence people, shall we say. But with the Normans, they were in those days on a bit of a rampage through southern Italy. From nearly the beginning of his papacy, Leo tried sorting things out with them in a nonviolent way, but nothing seemed to work. And so he resorted to recruiting an army, hearkening back to his old days of arranging soldiers, as it were, in a last-ditch effort to repel their forces in 1053. And that's saying something, too. I mean, think of what you've heard about him already. When a guy who's about as virtuous and merciful as they come ends up saying, yeah, we just need to go fight these guys, you know the problem's bad. But more on that at the end of the episode. In any case, the Pope's army ended up being resoundingly defeated at the Battle of Civitate in 1053, and the Pope, technically, was taken captive by the Normans. However, he certainly wasn't treated like a normal prisoner. In fact, his biographer writes that, quote, after contemplating his admirable self-confidence, their minds were changed, and they were converted to obedience, and kissing his footprints, they earnestly request the pardon that they so little deserved, end quote. Leo apparently all but converted the Normans, at the very least to soften their harsh ways and preserve his own dignity as their spiritual father, despite holding him captive for nearly a year. By the fifth anniversary of his coronation as Pope, February 12th, 1054, Leo IX's health was taking a turn for the worst. He had been residing in captivity at Benevento and desired to be taken back to Rome to live out his final days. And wouldn't you know, the Normans obliged. His biographer describes the scene rather beautifully. Quote, it was undoubtedly fitting that this most courageous defender of the Christian religion, as he approached the palace of Christ, his king, should be conducted in a noble and victorious triumph, preceded by a tamed multitude of the enemies whom he had now subdued. He remained for a little time in the Lateran palace, waiting to learn what most merciful decision had been made about him by the judge who sees the inner man. End quote. He would live two more months, and by the end the Roman people were flocking to his bedside in droves. He reassured them when they feared that the end was near, and prophesied to the end, saying the day before his death, quote, Defer what you are doing until tomorrow, at the third hour, and wait for the Lord's omnipotence to do with me what pleases him. End quote. The crowd returned according to his instructions the following day, and not six hours later, on the day of April 19th, 1054, Pope Leo IX died. An odd bit of trivia about Leo IX is that even though he died in Rome, he spent more time in Norman captivity. 36 weeks at the end of his reign than he did in Rome itself, which was only about 32 weeks, during his entire five years as Pope, so frequent were his travels. Almost immediately, the miracles that accompanied Leo IX during his earthly life continued to happen for those who visited his tomb. Bishop Bonito of Sutri, writing at the end of the 11th century, said of Leo IX, quote, The sick come to his tomb and are healed, and up to this day the infirm are freed from diverse ailments, end quote. Similarly, but with much greater detail, Bishop Bruno of Segni wrote around the same time about two such stories, one of which happened to himself. The first story was of a dwarf who had been deaf and mute since birth, but upon making a visit as an adult to Leo's grave, 
having lay prostrate and fallen asleep there, quote, he had seen the blessed Leo. Then when he had fallen asleep before his tomb, Leo came and placing his fingers in his mouth, loosened the tongue that had long been bound up, end quote. The second of those stories, which happened to Bishop Bruno himself, was a vision of Leo seen by a friend who came to Bruno and told him that the late Pope wished him to make a significant monetary gift, which he later was able to discern was a command to write, quote, a fitting memorial to him, end quote, and also to pick back up on the celebration of his sanctity in the bishop's cathedral, which he had allowed to fall by the wayside. If it's any surprise, Pope Leo IX was formally canonized a saint before long, being raised to the altars by his friend and right-hand man Hildebrand, now Pope Gregory VII, in 1082. As far as we know, Leo IX is still buried in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. To close out this episode, as we always love to do wherever possible, here's some final words from the Pope himself, in this case speaking on his reasoning for going to battle against the Normans. Quote, Seeing with that solicitude with which I must watch over all the churches, how the undisciplined and hostile nation of the Normans rose up against the churches of God with unheard of fury and with an ungodliness worse than that of the pagans, how they slaughtered Christians everywhere and afflicted some of them with new and horrible tortures even unto death, how without any human feeling they spared neither child nor old man, nor did they spare the weakness of woman, how they made no distinction between sacred and profane, how they plundered and burned the basilicas of the saints and tore them to the ground, I very often rebuked their perversity, reminding, beseeching, preaching, urging in season and out of season, and I threatened them with the terror of divine and human punishment. But because, as the wise man says, no one can make straight what God has made crooked from Ecclesiastes, and the fool is not corrected by words, also from Ecclesiastes, their malice has become so hardened and obstinate that with every day it has added bad deeds to worse, consequently choosing not only to use the property of others, but also to exhaust my own resources in liberating Christ's sheep, I consider it necessary to raise a defensive force from wherever men could be recruited, to bear witness to their iniquity, and if it was expedient, to curb their arrogance. For I have learned from the Apostle that princes do not bear the sword in vain, but are servants of God, executing his wrath on every evildoer, and that princes are not a terror to good conduct but to bad, and kings and dukes are sent by God to punish malefactors, from 1 Peter. Supported, therefore, by such forces as the limited time and the present emergency permitted, I decided to seek conference and counsel of your most faithful man, the glorious Duke and Commander Argerus. Not that I desired the destruction or planned death of any of the Normans or of any men, but that those who do not dread the judgments of heaven might at least come to their senses through the fear of men. Meanwhile, while we were trying to break down their obstinacy with our salutary warnings, and while they were responding with false promises of total subjection, they launched a sudden attack against our forces. But now they are grieving rather than rejoicing over their victory. For as your piety has taken pains to write for our consolation as a result of their presumption, they may expect an even greater wrath to overtake them in the future after those losses that they have already suffered in their ranks. We ourselves, trusting that divine aid will be with us and that human help will not fail us, shall not give up our intention of liberating Christendom, nor shall we give any rest in our time until Holy Church now so much in danger, is at rest. End quote. Well, that's it for the story of the Pope who worked miracles, St. Leo IX. We really hope you enjoyed it, especially if you're a new listener. Please, if you haven't already, give us a rating and a review over at iTunes. Sadly, the most recent review we received is a two-star review. Yeah, seriously, I know. The nerve. 
But I do think it's worth reading because it brings up a great opportunity for uh, clarity and is a chance to share a little known resource over at the Popecast website as well. So the review, two stars. Disappointed for what I needed. Uh, H.A. Pierce, 1975. When I saw this podcast, I got so excited because I'm a new Catholic, converted Protestant, and knew next to nothing about the last 2,000 years of Christianity. A podcast on the popes was exactly what I'm looking for. Episode one, St. Peter, and off we go. Only number two wasn't number two. It wasn't a chronological introduction to the popes. I was immediately lost. No foundation to understand the situation the pope is living in. I'm sure lifelong Catholics will appreciate just the greatest hits, but it's so hard to find a good source to give a timeline on issues and events of each era. I really think that the only people capable of jumping around the timeline with the popes will be people that already know the popes. Well, that last part at least isn't true. We know because uh, many of you uh, haven't have just listened to the, to the popecast because you love the idea of papal history and want to learn more. But more importantly, the reason that <laughs> the reason that we didn't go in chronological order is because it would really take like four years to get into the meat of some of these. And knowing that uh, I didn't want to subject people for a year of like 500s to 900s AD uh, with very little and very boring stories. (laughs) And oftentimes we decided instead to jump around, you know, sometimes to speak on, on popes that are relating to something going on in the culture today. Otherwise, just interesting stories to know, like the case of Leo IX here. But at any rate, uh, there are two resources that I want to shout out. So uh, for people who have been listening since the very beginning or have listened to the very earliest episodes at the very least, uh, will remember that this uh, this podcast itself came out of a project that I did for my day job uh, called Popes in a Year. And so it's a daily email series. Um, You can sign up for that at flocknote.com slash popes still. So I think it's in its sixth year, which is pretty crazy. Uh, But Popes in a Year, and that does go chronological. So uh, six years ago or five and a half years ago, I wrote uh, a daily email entry from Peter to Francis on each pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Just a little two-minute something. The reason the Popecast exists is because there was just so much detail that just couldn't fit in an email like that. Uh, And it was just a bummer. (laughs) I couldn't tell the story. So that's why the Popecast exists. And so uh, Popes in the Year is still running. Uh, Again, flockdor.com slash popes if you want to sign up for that. And the second resource, um, with the Popecast in mind, it is still good to be able to go through and see okay, which of the popes in order have been covered? And so on uh, our podcast website, thepopecast.fm, uh, up at the top, there's a, a menu item just titled List of Popes. And so it's a chronological list of the popes, and there it's linked there, uh, each of the episodes that we've done next to each one. So we've done uh, Peter and Linus already. Clement was number three. Uh, Clement's pope number four. Uh, jumped down to St. Anicetus at number 11. So we've, we've done, you know, well, this is episode 86. Not all of them have been on on popes, but I think probably about 75-ish um, or so have been on popes. So we've got about a quarter of, of the popes covered. Um, so that's, again, the popecast.fm under list of popes up at the top. So again, thank you for the review, H.J. Pierce. I hope you give it another shot. Um, praise God for your conversion. I'm glad you're, you at least listen to some. Hope you come back sometime. But um, but again, thank you to everybody who does listen. Thank you also to all of our patrons. Without you guys, we could do none of this. Um, the podcast will always be free to listen to, but your patronage does help us cover the various costs that comes with producing a show like this. So if you're if you're willing, if you've got a few bucks uh, every month that you could uh, throw towards us, or and you want to support the show, um, or a, a couple bucks an episode actually is, is how it's set up, uh, and help ensure that the podcast is around long into the future, so we can cover all 264 dudes. Visit the pa- uh, patreon.com/thepodcast. So it's patreon.com/thepodcast. 
to support the show. And as we head out today, let's pray in thanksgiving for the life of St. Leo IX, that we uh, might see the miracles working in our own life, be open to them happening in our own life, because they do still happen, believe it or not. Uh, and we you know, pray for his intercession, uh, especially in the times that we live in, because he lived in very similar times, let's be honest. Well, uh, Pope St. Leo IX, pray for us. And as always, as we go, let us remember that although these are strange times we live in, they are no stranger than an age's past. Until next time.